Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 351, Thoughts on My Dialogue with Craig on the Trinity and the Bible, Part 2. In this second half of my reflections on my one-hour dialogue with Dr. William Lane Craig, I'm going to focus more on biblical issues, including his unconvincing proof texts for the deity of Christ, his appeal to Sharp's rule, and his allegation that Unitarian Christians are necessarily driven to weird and even silly interpretations of the New Testament. I'm also going to fess up to some stupid mistakes I made toward the end of our dialogue, and I'll end with calling attention to a number of, I think, indisputable facts that Dr. Craig was not able to address in the course of our discussion, and which I think are going to come back to haunt him later. More than one person afterward complained to me that I was a little bit too interrupty. I agree. At a couple points in the discussion, I did get slightly snippy. I was a little bit irritated that we were supposed to talk about whether or not you could really get a triune God theory out of the Bible. And I felt like Dr. Craig changed the subject to what he felt would be an easier topic, which is the deity of Christ. Right? His excuse was, this is fatal to Unitarianism. Right, So I don't have to argue for my view, I'm just going to refute your view. I didn't like that. I thought we needed to stick to trying to get a triune God out of the Bible. And if you want to have a debate about the deity of Christ, to me, that's a different debate. But, you know, I guess it's relevant in that if you thought that the options facing a Christian were either Trinitarian or Unitarian, uh, and you could somehow just easily rule out the whole class of Unitarian, well, I guess that just leaves the Trinitarian one standing. Of course, then you've still got the biblical problem of how you get from the Bible to even the most minimal Trinity theory. So, yeah, he emphasized that there are just a whole bunch of passages, five different authors, call Jesus God in the same sense as the Father, just all over the New Testament. It's obviously failed Unitarianism. And to me, there is a real lack of perspective here, and I don't want to say dishonest, but something very misleading about the way that he presents all of that. Okay, as far as a whole bunch of passages, the standard view is that the term theos is applied to Jesus in the New Testament between zero and eight times. I think it's probably zero or one, but it's more common for conservative scholars to think there are about eight times. This is the position argued in standard monograph on this called Jesus as God, the New Testament use of theos in reference to Jesus by the evangelical scholar Murray J. Harris. Let me grant that there are eight places in the New Testament where Jesus is called God, or make it ten just to be generous. Still, these are incredibly rare exceptions to the rule that normally the New Testament authors reserve the term theos, God, for the Father. Why is it that more than 99% of the time, theos refers to the Father? If the Son is just as divine as the Father, why not spread it around a whole lot more than that? I suggest that the best explanation is that the New Testament authors assume the identity of the one God with the Father. They tended, in Judaism of this time, to reserve the God talk for the one God, and that's what they're doing here with respect to the Father. It's not that they can't use the word theos in a lesser sense, but they don't want to do it very much. They want to mostly reserve it for God. 
If that's right, then when they're applying the word theos to Jesus, then whenever they do, they must be doing it in a lesser sense. Which, as I mentioned, you can see right in John 10 that it was a well-established Jewish tradition at that time that beings lesser than God could be referred to as God or gods. There's a lot of Old Testament precedent for that. So it seems to me that I have explained the extreme rarity of these authors using the word theos for the Son, granting that they do, but Dr. Craig has not explained that. Now, I've heard Dr. Craig in other conversations suggest that if the New Testament authors were to call Jesus God too much, this would be confusing, because then people would think he was the Father himself. Well, yeah, I think that's right, but also the identity of the Father and God is assumed. The same one who is called Yahweh in the Old Testament is the one who is called the Father in the New Testament. God the Father, our Father in heaven, etc. I think that's really just reading comprehension. So yeah, they don't want people to confuse Jesus with the Father. And because the Father and God for them are one and the same, they don't want people to confuse Jesus with God either. Furthermore, how is he going to establish by argument that each author assigns exactly that middle-high meaning of deity or divinity or the word God to both the Father and the Son? I don't know how you're supposed to argue that. Maybe by elimination, that there's four senses of the word God. For some person to whom the word of God came, John 10, maybe to an angel, part of the divine council, and then to what Dr. Craig needs, which is some kind of divinity greater than the two just mentioned, but less than the following one, which is the kind of divinity which entails being a god. I guess you'd have to knock down one, two, and four, and just have three be the last meaning that's standing. Something like that. Dr. Craig has not done that. I think he needs to do it if he's going to convince us that this is the right way to understand New Testament God talk. Now, his strategy in you know refuting all Unitarianism with a small handful of texts follows what I call the Catholic tradition of the canon within a canon. This is where you take a small handful of texts, which allegedly we can use to prove the deity of Christ. And it's remarkable, and most of this, again, is in Murray Harris's book, Jesus as God, that every one of these texts is problematic for one reason or another, because the interpretation is difficult, because there's a textual discrepancy, or because there's a translation problem, and that even the professionals differ about how to translate it. So John 1.18, where Dr. Craig asserts that John refers to Jesus as the only begotten God, this is what some, but I think not all, of the recent critical texts judge. I think they're over-applying the rule of thumb that you should go with the more difficult reading. Why would John call the Son the only begotten God? Or, if the mean is the unique God, well, he doesn't think the Son is the unique God. He thinks the Father is, like he says. And really, throughout the book, you see that. The other readings make more sense, that it's just monogenes, or that it's monogenes huios, the unique son. So to just throw that out there with no comment as proving that New Testament authors call the son God, it's not good methodology. At John 1.1, 1, 1, he says, obviously, there Jesus is referred to as God. No, that's not obvious. The Logos is. But as I pointed out in the discussion, we shouldn't think the Logos is the same person as Christ. We shouldn't think the Logos is a person at all. The Logos is a personification of a divine attribute. 
And about this phrase in John, halagos, the word, notice that although the author applies a whole lot of other high titles to the man Jesus throughout the book, for instance, the way, the truth, and the life, he pointedly never refers to the man Jesus later in the book as the logos. And I suggest that the reason for that is that he doesn't want us to think that his personification in the prologue is a real person. That would be a bad reading error. He might well call Jesus the Word of God. There wouldn't be anything wrong with calling the man Jesus that. But if he does that, he tempts you to collapse together the human person Jesus with this personification, God's Word, in the prologue. Hebrews 1.8.9, yeah, quoting the psalm, I think the Son is called God there. But don't just look at Hebrews 1.8, read also Hebrews 1.9. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Spike the ball, call Jesus God, right? And it must be in the same sense that the Father is God. Well, hang on, let's keep going. Knowing that this is quoting an ancient coronation psalm about a king should make us wonder about that claim. But anyway, the author continues, quoting, A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Is the Son being called God in the same sense that the Father is called God? No. The Father doesn't have a God over him. But this one who's being called God is under a God. So it just seems to obviously be a lesser usage of the word God. Which category you're going to put it in is going to differ depending on your Christology, but my point is it's not going to be the same sense of God that you apply to the Father. This other quote, God the Father, doesn't have a God. Hmm, looks like a lower sense of the term God then. First John 5.20, see Murray Harris's book, Jesus is God. He argues at great length for my position. Here's the whole verse in the NIV. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. The Son of God enables us to know Him who is true. Hmm, who would that be? Well, the Father. Right. And we are in Him who is true. We should understand the Father, although that's not explicitly said, by being in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life, which the Father or the Son well, the nearest referent is Christ, but it says true God, and it just mentioned the one who is true, and that's the Father. And no, the grammar doesn't require that the Son here is being called the true God in eternal life. It's consistent with that's referring to the Father, or to the Father and the Son. Now, about Titus 2.13, it says, While we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that's the main translation in the New Revised Standard Updated Version. But in the footnote, it says, or of the great God and our Savior. So it's the manifestation of the glory of both of them in the footnote, two different ones. And in the text, the main translation, it's the manifestation of the glory of one of them, which is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The older, also literal KJV looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. These translators think it's just straightforwardly too, and they don't even give an extra option in a footnote. Who is right? One more text, 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. 
in the Old King James that says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. It's that righteousness coming from or belonging to or pertain to God and Jesus. That's how those translators take it. New Revised Standard talks about the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Doesn't even give an option in the footnotes. Who is right? Well, as you can tell, the professionals disagree. Dr. Craig made the assertion that there's this Granville-Sharp rule, which is an ironclad rule and just simply requires that there is only one thing being referred to in texts like these. My understanding is that that's outdated. It's not an ironclad rule of Koine Greek, and it's just really not good scholarship to push the Granville-Sharp rule. Now, in response to his assertions, I want to read you a little bit from a chapter of a book called The Truth in Translation, Accuracy and Bias in English Translations of the New Testament by Jason David Bedoon. In his eighth chapter, he writes this. In Titus 2.13, Paul refers to the situation of, quote, awaiting the happy hope and the manifestation of the glory of the great God and our Savior, Christ Jesus, where the crucial Greek phrase is, to megalu theu kai sateros hemon Christu Yesu. Paul's phrasing is somewhat ambiguous, and on first glance, there seems to be two possible ways to understand the phrase. It could be read as the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, as if the whole phrase was about Jesus only, and he is called both God and Savior, or it could be read as, quote, the glory of the great God, comma, and of our Savior, comma, Christ Jesus as if both God and Jesus, as distinct figures, are mentioned. And then he mentions the King James rendering, which I already mentioned, and uh, the Catholic New American Bible, which says the appearance of the glory of the great God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The same issue arises in regard to 2 Peter 1.1. Author refers to, quote, the righteousness of our God and, in parentheses, of the Savior, Jesus Christ. The New World Translation adds the in brackets before Savior Jesus Christ, making explicit a reading that distinguishes between the latter and our God. The New Revised Standard offers this reading in a footnote, but places in its main text, quote, the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, a translation followed by all other modern translations under consideration. Once again, we turn to parallel passages for help and find one in the very next verse. So in 2 Peter 1, we have... To Theu Hemon Kaisateros Yeson Christu, of the God of us and of the Savior Jesus Christ. One verse later, 2 Peter 1 2, we have To Theu Kai Yesu, to Kuriu Hemon, of the God and of Jesus the Lord of us. All of the translations that we are comparing properly maintain the distinction between God and Jesus our Lord in verse 2, while most ignore it in verse 1. But the grammatical structure of the two sentences is identical, making it very doubtful that they should be translated in different ways. In English, we have to have an article before a common noun, so the Savior, and not before a name, Jesus, but that is something about proper English expression, not about the original Greek. Those who defend the translations that read as if only Jesus is spoken of in both Titus 2.13 and 2 Peter 1.1 attempt to distinguish those two passages from the parallel examples I have given by something called Sharp's Rule. 
1798, the amateur theologian Granville Sharp published a book in which he argued that when there are two nouns of the same form, that is the same case, joined by and, chi, only the first noun of which has the article, the nouns are identified as the same thing. Close examination of this much-used, quote, rule shows it to be a fiction concocted by a man who had a theological agenda in creating it, namely, to prove that the verses we are examining in this chapter call Jesus, quote, God. And by the way, just to interrupt for a moment, the agenda of this early modern apologist is right in the subtitle of his book. The full title is Remarks on the Uses of the Definite Article in the Greek Text of the New Testament, colon, containing many new proofs of the divinity of Christ from passages which are wrongly translated in the common English version, that is to say, in the KJV. Now, back to our author. Quote, Sharp's rule does not survive close scrutiny. He claimed that the rule did not apply to personal names, only to personal titles. That is why it is cited in connection with Titus 2.13 and not Titus 1.4, with 2 Peter 1.1 and not 1.2. Daniel Wallace has demonstrated that even that claim is too broad, since he found that Sharp's rule doesn't work with plural forms of personal titles. Instead, Wallace finds that a phrase that follows the form article, noun, and noun, when the nouns involved are plurals, can involve two entirely distinct groups— two overlapping groups, two groups of which one is a subset of the other, or two identical groups. In other words, there is no evidence that anything significant for the meaning of the words happens merely by being joined by and and dropping the second article, the second the. The problem is not with Sharp's honesty or his intelligence, but with the premises by which he did his work. He ignored the fact that the Greek language was not confined to the New Testament. The authors of the books of the New Testament did not have their own form of Greek with its own rules. Rather, they were working within a much larger Greek linguistic and literary environment. To be sure that you have identified a rule of Greek, you need to look beyond the confines of the New Testament. Because within the New Testament, a pattern of use may be only a coincidence within the small sample of Greek grammar and syntax found there. If we turn to the standard work of Greek grammar, that of Smith, or maybe it's Smythe, S-M-Y-T-H, we find no Sharp's rule. We do find several rules that may explain the pattern Sharp thought he was seeing in the New Testament. Smythe section 1143 says, quote, A single article used with the first of two or more nouns connected by and produces the effect of a single notion, end quote. That sounds an awful lot like Sharp's rule, doesn't it? But what exactly is meant by a single notion? Smythe gives two examples, the generals and captains, so all the commanding officers, and then the largest and smallest ships, so the whole fleet. You can see from these examples that the two nouns combined by and are not identical. The individual words do not represent the same thing. Instead, by being combined, they suggest a larger whole. The generals and captains together make up the more general category of commanding officers, just as the various sized ships constitute the fleet as a whole. So the article, noun, and noun construction does combine individual things into larger wholes, but it does not necessarily identify them as one and the same thing. This is further clarified by Smythe in section 1144, quote, a repeated article lays stress on each word, so the this and that. 
So when a writer wants to sharply distinguish two things, he or she will use the article with each noun. But when the two things in some way work together or belong to a broader unified whole, the article is left off of the second noun. So just the this and that. He says more about what are some actual Greek rules, but I think I'll leave it at that. And I'll just hasten to add that he doesn't mean parts and wholes strictly there. He just means that the things in some sense are a unit, in some sense are unified. That seems to be the sort of thing conveyed by that sort of Greek construction. And as indisputably they work together in the New Testament, God and his Christ could, in this sense, be viewed together, or loosely speaking, as a whole, as a single unit still not confusing them together, or even saying strictly that they're parts of some one thing. Now, going back to Dr. Craig's casual appeal to these controversial translations, even supposing that the translators of the NRSV are right about these things, you don't just throw these texts out there as proving your point. You know that the experts disagree, and Dr. Craig should know that this Granville Sharp rule is super contentious and I think widely rejected by the experts nowadays. I think it's an old apologist talking point, honestly, that doesn't hold up with current scholarship. At least that is outside of the evangelical bubble. You have to understand that evangelical biblical studies and theology to some extent is ghettoized from the wider scholarly communities. And there are certain topics that just really trigger their group loyalty. Reason goes out the window, the claws come out, and they just insist that one of their pet points is obvious. On my Bible bookshelf, I have a thick, heavy copy of a book called the NET Bible. The NET Bible is a very helpful resource. You can also get it online. And what's remarkable about it is its voluminous, heavy notes about translation and grammatical and interpretive issues. It goes way beyond the coverage that a study Bible would give to grammar-type questions. And so, generally, it's an excellent and useful resource. However, if you're going to go around questioning the sacred sharps rule, they got some news for you. I was really surprised when I turned to 2 Peter 1.1 and then to Titus 2.13 and found basically the same note. Check this note out. This is the note on 2 Peter 1.1. The terms God and Savior both refer to the same person, Jesus Christ. This is one of the clearest statements in the New Testament concerning the deity of Christ. The construction in Greek is known as the Granville Sharp Rule, named after the English philanthropist linguist who first clearly articulated the rule in 1798. Sharp pointed out that in the construction article, noun, chi, noun, in other words, the, some noun, and another noun, when two nouns are singular, personal, and common, i.e. not proper names, they always, that's in italics, had the same referent. (laughs) That's totally not true, but anyway, let me keep going. Illustrations such as the friend and brother, the God and father, etc., abound in the New Testament to prove Sharp's point. In fact, the construction occurs elsewhere in 2 Peter, strongly suggesting that the author's idiom was the same as the rest of the New Testament authors. So, in 2 Peter 1.11, the Lord and Savior, 2.20, the Lord and Savior, 
The only issue is whether terms such as God and Savior could be considered common nouns as opposed to proper names. Sharp and others who followed, such as T.F. Middleton in his masterful The Doctrine of the Greek Article, demonstrated that a proper name in Greek was one that could not be pluralized, since both God, Theos, and Savior, Soter, were occasionally found in the plural, they did not constitute proper names, and hence they do fit Sharp's rule. Although there have been 200 years of attempts to dislodge Sharp's rule, all attempts have been futile. Sharp's rule stands vindicated after all the dust has settled. And then it refers to a certain grammar regarding Sharp's rule, as well as to Titus 2.13 and Jude 4. So, Sharp's rule, yeah, it's just true. It just can't be refuted at all. Objections? What objections? We don't need to mention those. Just trust us. Nobody can refute Sharp's rule. Well, it isn't so. In fact, when the current day champion of Sharp's rule, Dr. Daniel Wallace, published his book in 2009 defending his own more elaborated version of Sharp's rule, it was poorly reviewed by his fellow evangelical scholar, Dr. Stanley Porter, in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. If you want to look into the two reviews and Wallace's response, I'll put a link to a video by my friend Daryl about that, which, in addition to being a good overview of Sharp's rule, will share a few of the details about this recent controversy with you. And it has links to the actual papers that you can get online. So the reviewer agreed with, quote, the deity of Christ, but did not think that this rule was helpful at all in arguing for the deity of Christ. And he's not the first Trinitarian critic to say that, never mind the Unitarian ones. My point is that this is a really partisan opinion. It really only tells you about the necessity of this article of faith in evangelical, theological, and biblical studies circles. Now, there's a lot more to be said about Sharp's rule, and I'm going to go into it in more depth momentarily. But let me pause now and step back and look at the bigger picture of what's happening. The thing that bothers me about this proof texting is the attempt to build a doctrine and argue for a doctrine on difficult and unusual texts whilst ignoring the greater field of clear texts. I want a vision of the whole New Testament to guide my thinking, not just the traditional Catholic canon within the canon. When the Trinity's podcast returns... A deeper dive into this so-called Sharp's Rule with some help from one of the all-time greatest Unitarian Christian scholars. Just about the most insightful thing that I've ever read regarding Sharp's supposed rule occurs in the book by leading 19th century Unitarian scholar Andrews Norton, 
called A Statement of Reasons for Not Believing the Doctrines of Trinitarians Concerning the Nature of God and the Person of Christ. This is from the third edition, 1859, which actually was published after his death. So in a long footnote, he mentions Granville Sharp, he mentions the general idea of this rule, where you have the something and something else, and there's no the on the second one, with the suggestion that this communicates that it's one and the same thing being talked about in two different ways. And the way Sharp puts it is difficult and unclear, and so he chooses to focus on the same defender you heard mentioned a minute ago, somebody a little bit later in the 1800s, a fellow named Middleton in a book called The Doctrine of the Greek Article. So he's going to interact with that. He's going to mention all of the many exceptions that Middleton builds into this rule. Then he's going to very insightfully point out the reason for all of these exceptions and then explain why, once you realize that scriptural authors distinguish between God and the Son of God, that just explains the phenomenon in question. And it's only when you forget that distinction that you think there's something interesting here regarding, quote, the deity of Christ. So Norton writes this, The argument of Sharp is defended by Bishop Middleton in his Doctrine of the Greek article. By attending to the rule laid down by him, with its limitations and exceptions, we shall be able to judge of its applicability to the passages in question. His rule, so this is Middleton's more careful formulation, is, quote, when two or more attributives, and Norton explains that by attributive, he means an adjective, participle, or noun, which communicates something about character, relation, or dignity, It's when two or more attributives joined by a copulative or copulatives, so connecting word like and, are assumed of, brackets, relate to the same person or thing before the first attributive, the article is inserted, before the remaining ones, it is omitted. So it's basically when you're using two different words to refer to the same thing, Put the in front of the first attributive word, typically a noun, but it could be something else, and leave out the the for the second word. Now, if that's all you say, then the rule will be shown to be false by many different kinds of sentences in the Greek New Testament. And so Norton goes on to explain all the exceptions that Middleton, mostly following Sharp, builds into the rule. Okay. So this doesn't work when the two words are, he says, names of substances considered as substances. Secondly, it doesn't apply to proper names. Third, it doesn't apply to nouns that are the names of abstract ideas. Fourth, it doesn't work if the nouns, etc., are plural. And fifth, we find, Middleton writes, in very many instances, not only in the plural, but even in the singular number, that where the attributives are in their nature absolutely incompatible, i.e., where the application of the rule would involve a contradiction in terms, there the first attributive only has the article, the perspicuity, the clarity, of the passage not requiring the rule to be accurately observed. Okay, so the rule is, if you're referring to some one thing using two different nouns or other words, and you're connecting those words with an and, use the for the first of them, but not the second. 
Although for many such pairs of words, all the aforementioned categories, this rule needn't be observed. Okay. So, he mentions the many passages that Granville Sharp thought this principle applied to, and Middleton, like pretty much all other later scholars, think that Sharp was wrong about most of those passages. But Middleton, like Sharp, thinks that there's a help here for defending the deity of Christ. And so he says it does work in the case of Titus 2.13 and 2 Peter 1.1, and also Jude 4, which we haven't talked about. So Norton continues, It is inferred that Christ is called, quote, God and, quote, the great God. And it is affirmed that the rule requires us to understand these titles as applied to him, to Christ. Okay, now here is Norton's answer. The general answer to this reasoning is as follows. It appears by comparing the rule with its exceptions and limitations that it in fact amounts to nothing more than this, that when substantives, in other words nouns, adjectives or participles are connected together by a copulative or copulatives, connecting words like and, if the first have the article, it is to be omitted before those which follow when they relate to the same person or thing. And it is to be inserted when they relate to different persons or things, except when this fact is sufficiently determined by some other circumstance. The same rule exists respecting the use of the definite article in English. The principle of exception just stated is evidently that which runs through all the limitations and exceptions which Middleton has laid down and exemplified, and is in itself perfectly reasonable. When, from any other circumstance, it may be clearly understood that different persons or things are spoken of, then the insertion or omission of the article is a matter of indifference. Let me paraphrase that. The general principle that Middleton and Sharp are talking about is this. When you have a phrase like the something and something else, if you're talking about one thing, it's normal to use just one the at the beginning of the phrase. The A and B. And if you're talking about two different things, then it's normal to use the second the also. The A and the B. However, Sometimes it's just a clear background assumption that the A and the B are one and the same, or that A and B are distinct from one another. So if there's a clear assumption that the two things are distinct from one another, you can just write the A and B, and people are not going to, just because you did that, confuse them together. So it just doesn't matter if you leave the second the off, because everybody knows these two are distinct. They're not one and the same. They're not co-referring words, is another way to put it. And to push it one step beyond what Norton says, consider the other case. If everybody knows that those are co-referring words, then you're not going to confuse people even by using the second the. I think that's a rarer case, but you can think of examples of it. So, for instance, a sports columnist might refer to the owner and manager of the team. The owner and the manager of the team went to lunch. 
in some circumstances, everybody will know that the owner and the manager are one and the same person. And so the assertion there is that just one guy or gal went to lunch, even though two these were just used in that phrase. In other circumstances, it may be a commonly known fact that the owner and manager are distinct. And so he would be saying that two people went to lunch. Maybe it's more normal or correct in that circumstance to say the owner and the manager went to lunch. That would make clear that we're talking about two. But again, it's just as clear when everybody knows those are two people to say the owner and manager went to lunch. To put it differently, when you're talking about two things, the normal procedure is to use two these. Although when everybody understands that they're two things, there's no need to put the second one in. And normally, when you're just talking about one thing in two different ways, you would just use a the at the beginning. But you could still use two these in certain circumstances. Suppose my wife homeschools my children. Then I could say, I kissed the mother and the teacher of my children. I'm only talking about one person there, but I used the two times. There's a clear scriptural example of this phenomenon, again, referring to one thing in two different ways, but using the twice. It's in Revelation 1.17. In this verse, our author is encountering the risen and exalted Jesus. He writes, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Did you hear the two these in the English translation? They're also there in the Greek. In the Greek, Jesus says to him, Me phobou, do not fear, ego emi ha protas, I am the first, kai ha eskatas, and the last. So all of the exceptions just have to do with clarity. When it's clearly two, you can leave off the second the. When it's clearly one, normally you would use one the. But you could use two, so long as it didn't confuse people in the context. That's the whole point. Greek, like English, is flexible in these things. It's really just clarity that matters. That's the underlying concern. So Norton continues, But if this be true, no argument for the deity of Christ can be drawn from the texts adduced. With regard to this doctrine, the main question is whether it were taught by Christ and his apostles and received by their immediate disciples. Anti-Trinitarians maintain that it was not, and consequently maintain that no thought of it was ever entertained by the apostles and first believers. But if this supposition be correct, the insertion of the article in these texts was wholly unnecessary. No ambiguity could result from its omission. The imagination had not entered the minds of men that God and Christ were the same person, or, I would add, the same being, or just numerically the same. The apostles in writing and their converts in reading the passages in question could have no more conception of one person only being understood in consequence of the omission of the article than of supposing but one substance to be meant by the terms halithos kai krusos on account of the omission of the article before krusos. He's referring back to an example that was mentioned before the Greek phrase halithos kai krusos the stone and gold. No one confuses stone with gold because of that example. 
neither is anyone going to confuse Christ and God for being the same person. That's his point. He continues, These texts, therefore, cannot be brought to disprove the anti-Trinitarian supposition because this supposition must be proved false before these texts can be taken from the exception and brought under the operation of the rule. The truth of the supposition accounts for the omission of the article. So our point is that God and Jesus were universally understood in apostolic times to be not one and the same, but two. And because of that background assumption that they are two, in proof of that, just observe the differences between them, then there was nothing confusing in the minds of the authors or the readers to use just one the when mentioning both of them. So, Titus 2.13, awaiting the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, in Greek, of the great God, to Megalu Theu, Kai Satras, Savior, Hemon, of us, Christu Yesu, Christ Jesus. Evidently, what's being referred to is the appearing of the glory, which is God's and which is also Jesus's. He's not confusing together God and Jesus for one and the same, as evidenced by the rest of the book. Never mind just the whole New Testament context. Look in Titus 1.4, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. He sends greetings from the two of them, so the author is not confusing the two of them together. He's assuming their distinctness. Or, look at the next verse after the one in question, Titus 2.14. It's still referring to Jesus Christ, and it says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us? He's referring to the crucifixion there. This author obviously assumes that Christ was crucified. Does he also think that our great God, that is to say the Father, was crucified? Of course he doesn't. Again, you can just see him assuming the differences between them. And that's why he doesn't need to use two these in the verse in question. Now go to 2 Peter 1. Don't just read the favorite proof text in question, 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Keep reading. One more verse, 2 Peter 1.2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. There's two who are objects of knowledge there. Now look at 2 Peter 1.17, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Again, the author shows his assumption that Jesus and God are two. God the Father never had to get glory from anyone. And it was he, and not the Son, who said this sentence, this is my beloved Son, etc. And this is why this writer doesn't think it's confusing at all to refer in the first verse of the book to a faith which is through the righteousness of the God of us and Savior Jesus Christ. It's a righteousness from our God to Theu Hemon and Savior Jesus Christ, Kaisotaros Yesu Christu. In the author's context, there was nothing unclear about that, which is why he could get away with not using a second the. He could have put it there. He could have written, Tu theu hemon kai hasataras Yesu Christu. 
then he'd be referring to the righteousness of the God of us and the Savior, Jesus Christ. The meaning would be the same, but he just didn't need that second the. So dialectically, if you're trying to argue against a Unitarian Christian who recognizes the New Testament assumption of the numerical distinctness of God and of his Son, it's really useless and not to the point to just assert this controversial and difficult Granville-Sharp rule. In our view, those two verses are counterexamples that show the falsity of the asserted rule. Furthermore, consider how the rule is put and quite exactly what is meant here by the deity of Christ. If the idea is that by leaving off that second the, that shows that these are co-referring terms, then the first thing that's mentioned would be numerically identical to the second thing that's mentioned. Do you really want to numerically identify Jesus with God? Because then if God is a trinity, Jesus will be a trinity. Or maybe you think the God mentioned is the Father, then you'd be identifying the Father with the Son. You don't really want to do that as a Trinitarian, do you? But that would be the application of this alleged rule, which I don't think really is a rule. Now, if you want to come back and say, well, no, I'm not trying to collapse Jesus with God. I'm not saying they're numerically one. I'm just saying that they're the same in essence. Well, that's not how the alleged rule is supposed to work. It's supposed to have to do with mentioning the same thing in two different ways. It's not supposed to have to do with asserting a sameness of universal essence like divinity, or even an individual essence, what metaphysicians call a trope or a hexaity. So it's not even clear, even if the rule were true, that it gives the Trinitarian what the Trinitarian should want. And here I'm extra confused about why Dr. William Lane Craig would want to appeal to the supposed Granville-Sharp rule. The upshot of the rule really is that the two nouns in question are just referring to one and the same thing twice. In other words, proponents of the rule are claiming that in those two texts, God and Jesus are being identified. They're one and the same thing being referred to in two different ways. Unfortunately, it follows from that that they couldn't differ in any way. Now, I know that Dr. Craig doesn't want to say that. He doesn't want to say that any of the persons of the Trinity are numerically identical to the one God. Well, why is he invoking Sharp's rule then? One last thing, if you're not sure what I mean by saying that Jesus and God are numerically the same, or why this would entail that they couldn't differ in any way, then check out the podcast and post at trinities.org called Podcast 124, A Challenge to Jesus is God Apologists. There I'm addressing not people like Dr. Craig. Dr. Craig doesn't collapse together Jesus with God. He thinks they're numerically distinct. But I am addressing the great mass of evangelical apologists who just gleefully collapse Jesus and God all the time. Which again just flies in the face of the New Testament fact that they're assumed to differ in a bunch of ways. So see that post for more details. I'll put a link for it on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. When the Trinities podcast returns, I fess up to making a couple of stupid errors in the latter part of our discussion. 
I did make a stupid factual mistake. So I know that there's a difference between the New Testament and second century and later Christian literature in that in the later literature, they much more freely refer to Jesus as God and even as our God and so on. And so I shot back at Dr. Craig at one point, you know, why think that Origen and Tertullian would have any problem with applying the phrase, the great God in Titus 2.13 to the Son? Actually, there's more than one mistake there. For one thing, while Logos theorists are comfortable using the word theos to refer to the Logos in addition to referring to the one true God, they're very unlikely to have approved of referring to the Logos as our great God. The adjective great is one they likely would have preferred to use to distinguish the ultimate reality, the one true God, from any other, quote, God there might be. But that's not the only mistake I made. I should have asked myself, wait a second, do I remember actually seeing Tertullian or Origen refer to either of these passages? Now, one thing I discovered by digging into this topic a little bit more is that more than one author who's criticizing Granville Sharp and his supposed rule point out that early Christian authors do not use this sort of argument for the deity of Christ, which seems to suggest that there just isn't the grammatical rule in question. It's purely imagined. Now, I have almost all their extant works. I'm not sure I have all of Origins, but I have most of them in a modern edition. And I can't find either Tertullian or Origen referring to Titus 2.13 at all. So as best I can tell, they just don't quote that verse or refer to it anywhere. Now, why would that be? Probably because they read these passages the way the King James translators did, having two reference. Now, If Paul were calling Jesus the great God, that would have been a really handy text to wield against, say, the dynamic monarchians. In other words, those ancient Christians who, like me, thought that Jesus was human and not divine. Or as their critics put it, believe that Jesus is a mere man. But even though Origen and Tertullian are somewhat concerned about those people, they don't quote Titus 2.13. So then they probably took the great God there to refer to the Father, not to the Son, Look, if they want to make the point that the Father is the one true God, which they both agreed with, then they had plenty of clearer passages to show that in the New Testament. If their point is that the one God is none other than the Father himself, they just don't need this passage. Does any ancient person take it in this modern way? I would think that the modalists did. To try to answer this question, I pulled off my shelf about six feet worth of heavy patristic tomes. And I started looking in the indexes. As it turns out, 2 Peter 1.1 and Titus 2.13 are not popular proof texts among early authors. In fact, they're not cited in any extant work by the following people. Any of the so-called apostolic fathers, Justin Martyr, Hippolytus, Cyprian, Novation, Tatian, Aristides the Philosopher, the many 2nd and 3rd century works in volumes 8 and 9 of the old Antinocene Fathers volumes, Gregory Thaumaturgus, Dionysius the Great, Julius Africanus, Anatolius, Archelaus, Alexander of Lycopolis, Peter of Alexandria, Alexander of Alexandria, Methodius, Arnobius, Lactantius, Venatius, Asterius Urbanus, Victorinus, Dionysius of Rome, the so-called teaching of the Twelve Apostles, the so-called constitutions of the Holy Apostles, a homily ascribed to Clement, and various early liturgies, which are in volume 7 of the old Antinocene Fathers series. 
I did find one author, the second century Platonizing Alexandrian, quote, father, Clement of Alexandria, in his book called Exhortation to the Greeks, first chapter, he does quote in the Greek, Titus 2, 11 through 13. And although it occurs in the middle of some Logos theory speculating, he doesn't make use of it to argue that Christ is the great God, that those are one and the same. Presumably, like all the others, he thinks it's referring to God and to Jesus, or to the Logos. Now, what all this tells us is that in all likelihood, there was no such grammatical rule, and this is why these two passages were never in ancient times popular deity of Christ proof texts. Probably, for the most educated of these people who really knew Greek in depth, if you were to urge that that construction implies the sameness of the two that are referred to, that would have been recognized as just ignorance of Greek. In itself, remember, the construction is compatible with the same thing being mentioned twice or with two different things being mentioned. But as best we can tell, in those several hundred years, there wasn't a single person who saw that ambiguity and went for it urging that, hey, really, this is saying that the great God and the Savior are the same one. Or Second Peter 1, 1, that God and the Savior Jesus Christ are one and the same. Now, maybe somebody asserted that. I would expect that to be a modalistic monarchian, but we don't have any record of those people doing it. So maybe not even they went this far. To me, this is pretty strong evidence that the imagined rule of grammar here just isn't a rule. And I think Andrews Norton explained why no ancient person would draw that inference here. Again, it's that when there's a background assumption that these are different things we're talking about, then the Greek author will feel free to drop the second article, because he doesn't need it to be clear. Dropping that second article will not tempt his audience, given the background knowledge, to confuse together as one these two different things that he's talking about. The confusions came later. Unfortunately, Dr. Craig is out there propounding them. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what about Dr. Craig's allegation that Unitarian Christians are driven to arbitrary, implausible, maybe even silly New Testament interpretations? And I'll review some facts that I don't think that Dr. Craig has properly faced up to yet. What about Dr. Craig's complaint that Unitarians are driven to weird, even silly interpretations? I would say that this is really a rather subjective point. I mean, I know these interpretations, say of John 1 or the My Lord and My God episode in John 20. I know they strike Dr. Craig as silly, but that's probably because he's not familiar with them. He's a part of the Theology Guild, which has willingly forgotten many centuries of Unitarian New Testament interpretation. I fully own that my interpretation of these passages, those are minority views. 
Absolutely. And also, we know from Christian history that there often is a heavy pressure to accept a majority view, which then turns out not to be right. Such as, say, that Jesus made Peter the first pope. Nope. That passage in Matthew does not say that, despite the many generations of people who thought that was just bloody obvious. Finally, as I listened back on my interesting exchange with Dr. Craig, it struck me that I pointed out a number of important facts that Dr. Craig did not know how to address. And I will be pressing most of these points in the book that we're going to be in together. So I think these things will need to be addressed by anyone who wants to defend the equal divinity of the Father and the Son. One unanswered point is this. The New Testament writings clearly teach that the Father is the God of the Son. That is, the Father is the God over the Son. So then it seems like the Father and Son are not divine or not God in the same sense. The God of the Bible is necessarily top-level. He can't be under the authority of someone who's greater than him or over him. Now, this is consistent with the Father being God in the highest sense, but then it seems like the Son wouldn't be. If he's God in any sense, it's got to be a lower sense. And if the Father is the God of the Son, then the Father is a God, not just part of a God. Moreover, this rules out that the Father and Son are the same God. One and the same God can't be God over himself. If any A is the God over B, that just implies that A and B are numerically distinct, and that whatever else they are, they're not the same God. Another fact I point out which seems to confirm Unitarian views and to disconfirm Trinitarian views is the actual New Testament pattern of worship that we can see in the texts. In those texts, the Trinity is never an object of worship. The Holy Spirit is never an object of worship. The primary and ultimate object of worship is the Father, a.k.a. God, and the Son, particularly the exalted Son, is a secondary object of worship. But unlike God, the Son is worshipped, Paul says in Philippians 2.11, to the glory of God the Father. This pattern of worship is very surprising, if any Trinity theory is true, even the minimal one. And it's not nearly as surprising, if it's surprising at all, given a Unitarian theology. And so it seems to favor a Unitarian theology over any Trinitarian one. Third point, and I made this point repeatedly in the dialogue, is that the New Testament authors just frequently imply limits on the Son, limits which would not be shared by the Father or by a fully divine being. Okay, so then the Son must not be divine in the same sense as the Father, if he is divine in some sense. Dr. Craig, seems to me, cannot plausibly explain this clear New Testament phenomenon. And for more on that, you can see podcast 334, Who Do You Say I Am? But any Unitarian theology can explain it, since for any Unitarian, the Son is a distinct and lesser being than the one true God, who is the Father. So that's why when the writers imply a limit on the Son that's not shared by a Father or by a fully divine being, they just walk right past it. Now, Dr. Craig, I think in our discussion, was just assuming that two natures theory will come to the rescue, that if the Son has two natures, this will show how the Son can be, say, omniscient and not, and how the Son can be essentially immortal and not. That's a big assumption. My own view, after many years of investigation, is that despite its prestige, the whole project of Chalcedonian Christology is a failure. 
as best I can tell, there is no version of Two Natures Christology which both fits the New Testament and shows how one and the same Christ can be both human and divine. In fact, I have a journal article that's currently under review in which I try to refute Craig's own brand of Two Natures theory. That article tries to develop the case beyond what you heard in Trinity's podcasts 343 and 344. So the jury's still out, but I hope that will come out sooner or later. But just remember the strategy of saying that Jesus can be human and divine because he's got two natures, that's not a New Testament doctrine. You don't see any author saying anything like that. They never say, well, he doesn't know that they are the hour, but don't think he's not omniscient because he's got this divine nature in which he knows the day and the hour. Right? That just never happens. So this later project of trying to smooth out human divine incompatibilities with a two natures speculation is a later thing if you don't just merely import that back anachronistically into the New Testament, now you have to wonder, wait a second, if they really think Jesus is fully divine, how can they think that if they think he has all these limits? Or how can they think Jesus is divine or God in the same sense as is the Father, given that the Father knows the day or the hour and the Son doesn't? Or the Father is essentially immortal and the Son is not, because he died. Once you don't have this crutch, this assumption that two natures theory works all out, okay, it doesn't, then every evidence that Jesus is limited is evidence that they don't think he's divine in the way that the Father is divine. The fourth fact would be the embarrassing historical gap implied by Dr. Craig's account. So in his view, the New Testament authors are Trinitarian, and despite that, mainstream theology from roughly Justin to Eusebius, the historian, so, you know, about 150 to 350, hey, there are no Trinitarians in that period. (laughs) Really? Like, mainstream Christianity totally dropped the ball? How could they do that if the minimal Trinity doctrine is an obvious biblical teaching? But that's okay, because in the last half of the 300s, now we have Trinitarians, although they're the wrong kind for Dr. Craig. We have people like the Cappadocian Fathers holding to a hopeless creedal trinity theory, which actually contradicts the New Testament. Now, Dr. Craig wanted to brush off this historical weirdness, this historical gap in Trinitarianism as irrelevant, but no, it's relevant in two ways. First, it shows that the equal deity of the Father and Son was not at all obvious. Frankly, if it was obvious, you wouldn't have had the whole so-called Arian controversy. And it shows that the triune God idea is not any sort of obvious implication of Scripture. And it's relevant, it's not irrelevant, because historical context is a key part of historical critical interpretation of the texts. We need to know what sorts of ideas were or were not around at the time the text was written. That will guide us what interpretation we're willing to put on a text that we have before us. To go back to a previous example, that passage in Matthew can't possibly be teaching that Jesus made Peter the first pope, because the idea of a pope is a later idea. The pope is the unique overseer over the churches in Rome. The one-bishop system was only being established during the 100s and 200s. It doesn't exist in the first century, as best we can tell. And so it's just a blatant anachronism to read it that way, no matter how much your theology pushes you in that direction. It's obvious when it's somebody else, Roman Catholics. It's not as obvious when it's your own peeps that are making the big assumptions. Relatedly, as I said in the dialogue, God is a competent revealer. If he reveals some truth, then people believe it, at whatever period it was when the revelation occurred. 
And really, we don't see any core of Christians, whether majority or minority, believing in any sort of Trinity doctrine until around the time of the Second Ecumenical Council in 381. Yet, as I mentioned, that's a kind that, in his view and also in mine, contradicts the New Testament. So here we are in 2022, still trying to interpret these baffling words, the words of the creeds. What about Dr. Craig's minimal view? Well, that's not universally believed or even nearly universally believed among even just Trinitarians. So those seven claims that constitute his minimal theory, however understood, they seem not to have been divinely revealed. Fifth point, New Testament affirmation of core Jewish theology with no corrections. That's really astounding if the New Testament authors are Trinitarians. Sixth point, lack of any controversy about whether Christian theology is truly monotheistic or monotheistic in the right way. Now, in response to these points, Dr. Craig just asserts that the New Testament authors saw that a tripersonal God was needed. Now, show us the New Testament passage where any New Testament author says this, that, you know, the Jewish monotheism isn't enough or that you need to have a multipersonal God, etc. Right? Basically, he just retreats to his deity of Christ proof text. Those are not good enough. Seventh point, lack of any New Testament term or phrase which was then understood to refer to a tripersonal God. This really is a devastating point, I think. And when the host reiterated this point of mine, Craig just retreated off to what he wanted to talk about, which was the argument I discussed before for why it can't be that any New Testament author identifies any of the persons with God. Right? So he gave an argument that any talk of the Father or Son being, quote, God has to be predication and identification. Maybe two arguments for that. But again, the lack of any New Testament term or phrase that was then understood to refer to a tripersonal God really is very strong evidence that they didn't believe in a tripersonal God. Imagine you're talking to some anthropologist who studied this far-off tribe of people, and he says, yeah, this tribe over here believes in a seven-headed goddess of fire. And you say, oh, that's interesting. What do they call that goddess? And he says, nothing. Say, what? Yeah, they don't have any word that is understood by them to refer to the seven-headed goddess of fire, but yeah, that is their main god. What? (laughs) Like, if you believe in a god, then it's important to you. You have uses for it, so to speak, such as prayer, but then you have to be able to refer to that God using a word or words. If somebody doesn't have a word that refers to a triune God, then they don't believe in a triune God. Is it logically possible to believe in a triune God and not have a word that refers to such? Yeah, I think it is, depending on what you mean by believe. It's probably going to be possible. But my point here is not about metaphysical possibility, it's about evidence. No word, then in all likelihood, no belief in such a God. You could ask, what does Paul call the Trinity? And the answer is nothing. He never refers to the Trinity using any word or phrase whatever. Well, then seemingly he doesn't believe in it, because presumably he tells you about all the important deities he believes in, right? Same is true of John, Peter, authors of the Synoptics. And about Paul, let me recommend my presentation of an interesting 1828 Unitarian Christian tract called The Apostle Paul, a Unitarian, which is Trinity's podcast 253. Two more points, and I did not clearly make this point in the discussion, but I want to make it now, and it's going to come up again. This is the observation of what I call mere man compatible thesis statements and big reveals in the New Testament. 
And this applies to the statement of John in chapter 20 when he tells you what the point of the book is. It's that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, it'd be baffling if he thought that Jesus was God in the same sense that the Father is God, and yet he makes what I just said his main thesis. What I just said is something that Socinus would love. It's something that Unitarian Christians like me are just perfectly happy with. What's the thesis of each of the synoptics? It comes up when Jesus asks the apostles, who do you say I am? The Christ, the Son of God. Right, that's the point. The point is made many, many different ways in those books. Well, that's a mere man-compatible statement. Now, why would they go and do a thing like that if they think Jesus is divine in the way the Father is divine? The answer is, on the face of it, they wouldn't. So this seems like good evidence against their ascribing equal deity to the Son and the Father. So, depending on how you count them, I made at least eight points which help the cause of Unitarian interpretation, which Dr. Craig really left unaddressed. He just left them on the table. Now, in fairness, that may be because he was hearing some of them for the first time. But I think as time goes on, he's going to owe us a response to these important pieces of evidence. So again, I thank Dr. Craig, and I hope we can have a friendly argument sometime again in the future. And I hope that you've gotten something out of these three episodes of the Trinity's podcast. Thanks for listening. This week's thinking music has been the track Retro Futuristic Space Atrium by Jesse Spillane. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.